following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, if you can hear my voice, can we find your way back to your seat, please? And if you have your Bible, please open to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one of the Bibles next to you on one of the chairs. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. Or if you'd like to upgrade it, we have a smaller, nicer one uh, that you can have as well. Jeremiah chapter 11. Before we begin, we will go to the Lord in prayer. Just pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. And for the opportunity to gather with your body, we are thankful for those who are here. Thank you for health and uh, the beauty of creation on a day like this. Reminded, God, of the majesty and the terror of creation in the midst of a storm followed by uh, a beautiful spring morning. God, would this same Reminder of, of beauty and majesty be felt and admired this morning as we look to your word. And over the next 45 minutes, God, would we be careful to hear from you as you speak to us through your word, as you spoke to your people through your prophet Jeremiah, speak even now to us by the Spirit. Help us to understand and obey it. Illuminate our minds to receive it. We pray for, for those who are not gathered with us, those who normally are here, but work or life or sickness has, has kept them away. God, we pray that they would be encouraged and instructed by your word. And for those, God, who are not gathered with the body, though they should be, but have been kept by sin, we pray that you would graciously but sternly would rebuke them in their sin, confront them, that they may be restored both to you and to the church. For your glory. And now we pray, God, that you would give us our hearts and our minds an ample room to hear and to take in, to receive and to cherish that which we will be receiving today. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 11. Last week we ended in verse 17, so we're going to pick up in verse 18 and read there through the end of chapter 12. So chapter 11, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 11, verse 18, through to the end of chapter 12. Recall this far in Jeremiah, the prophet has been warning Israel of the impending judgment at God's hand by the Babylonian army that now is creeping towards the gates of Jerusalem. They're in the southern tribe of Judah. Several times God now has warned them that if they do not repent, the armies of Babylon will take them into captivity. And all that which they hold dear and cherish will be thrown away and threatened for destruction. But also along the way, God has kept His promise that as they repent, He will restore them. If they turn from their idol worship, He will welcome them again. And then chapter 11, we see ultimately this coming to its apex where the covenant itself is now undermined and God himself is rejected for other idols. So he turned now to verse 18. Jeremiah writes, The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. And then you showed me their deeds. I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me, but they devised schemes, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, 
Let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Therefore says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it and the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemy. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, and therefore I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come, for the sword of the Lord devours one from the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tried themselves out, but nothing of profit. They, have, they shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. And thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. The main idea this morning is that the ground of our confidence, the ground of our hope, the ground of our obedience is a trust in God for who He is, what He has done, and what He has promised. Jeremiah faces a crisis of vocation. Here he's been sent by God, called by God, set apart even before he was born to be a prophet to the nations, to speak and proclaim the truth of God, not only to Judah, but to all nations, declaring the coming vengeance of God. And he learns by God himself of a plot against his life. And as you might expect, as any one of us might, does, might have done, we begin to question our choices. Have we really made the right choice to put our neck out for the Lord? 
Jeremiah is there in the middle of the city proclaiming God's truth, that God is angry against the sin of Judah, that Babylon is on its way to overtake it, and that if they do not turn from their wicked ways, they will be consumed by the wrath of God. Certainly not a popular message. And he learns by God's own hand that there is a plot against him, men scheming to take his life, and his confidence begins to wane. He complains to God. This is this conversation between Jeremiah and God about whether or not he is making the right choice to obey God in his calling or to preserve his own life. What we learn from this confidence is that the ground of our hope and our, and our expectation for what God might do within our lives as we submit to His calling, the, the ground of our own obedience must be a trust in God Himself and not in our circumstances. It must be a trust for who God is, how He's revealed Himself to be faithful, kind, loving, forgiving, for what He's done for us and all the past faithfulnesses of His life and ultimately what he has promised to do in his word. We're going to do this in three steps. First, we're going to consider Jeremiah's complaint about his circumstances and God's response to that complaint. Secondly, we're going to try to understand the link between our perspective of our circumstances, like Jeremiah's perspective of his own, the link between our perspective of our circumstances and God's purposes in our circumstances. And then finally, we'll explore six ways to confidently commit ourselves to a trustworthy God. That's the key verse we're going to focus in on this morning. Verse 20, there at the end, when he prays, O Lord, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance come upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. So we'll explore six ways to confidently commit ourselves to a trustworthy God. So we'll consider Jeremiah's complaint and God's response. We'll try to understand the link between our perspective and God's purposes and explore six ways to confidently commit ourselves to a trustworthy God. As we turn to the text, there's really two larger categories to think about here. First is the uncertainty of obedience. Jeremiah is experiencing the uncertainty of obedience. And then as God responds, we see the certainty of judgment. The uncertainty of obedience gives way to a certainty of judgment. Okay, so in the first section here, verses 18 through 20, we see Jeremiah describe this threat of harm that comes against him. The Lord made it known to me, and, and I knew, based on God's words, who has shown them his deed, the deeds, that he was being led like a gentle lamb to the slaughter. There were plots against him. He had no idea that they were out to take him, but certain people, we learn his own kin, decided to plot against him. It says, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off in the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. Now, why do they seek to kill Jeremiah? We see later in verse 21 that it says that they are their own kinsmen who seek your life. And they say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hands. They wanted Jeremiah to be silent. And the only way to silence a prophet commissioned by God was to run him off or to kill him. Well, up to now, Jeremiah has, has shown resilience in his ministry. He has faithfully proclaimed God's word over and over again, even at great bodily harm to himself. And yet now he hears something very close to home. His own family is seeking to kill him because of his ministry. They warn him, stop prophesying or we will kill you. Now the reason for this could be social or it could be personal. We're not told. Certainly Jeremiah's ministry was controversial. He called out the sins of the nation. 
He even seemed to suggest that this impending Babylonian captivity was, was justified, that they somehow deserved it, let alone it being ordained and carried out by God's own hand. Personally, Jeremiah probably would have gravely disappointed his family, who may have felt that it was their obligation to put him to death for the dishonor he caused them. Many businesses and ways of life were tied up in this idolatry and the syncretism that was happening between Judah and these other nations around them. And so this was really a threat to their livelihood, to their way of life, to all that they held dear and worshipped. And Jeremiah comes out and scorns all of them by the word of God that they are sinful and they need to repent. Otherwise, God will judge them. Well, it's hard for us to imagine being so disappointed in our family that we may cause or have cause to do them harm. But this is not uncommon there in the ancient Near East. And even now, today, there are cultures in which dishonor may merit death, according to their own traditions and customs. So Jeremiah learns of this threat of harm against him. But he also has a second complaint we see there in chapter 12 in the first four verses that they seem to go unchecked all the time. These marauders and these unrighteous, wicked people who sacrifice to Baal and who worship false idols, who are profiting from their wickedness, seem to go unchecked by God. Notice what he says in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Lord, I know you're righteous and I can't bring any complaint to you, yet I, I still have this complaint that I would plead before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You, you seem to have planted them. You seem to have let them take root. Now they're producing fruit, even though they please you with their mouth, but their hearts are far from you. As opposed to me, who has done nothing but obey, I've, I've done my best to do what you've said. You know me. You can test my heart and my mind. You know that I'm faithful to you, God. Why am I the one that's being singled out when these seem to prosper? Rather, you should pull them out like a weed. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. So there's a threat of harm, but he also complains about the prosperity of the wicked, the unchecked idolatry, that God seems to only be warning, but has done nothing to mitigate. In fact, probably what he has in mind is something like Psalm chapter 1, where God promises that those who are righteous would devote themselves to God's word and then be like a tree planted firmly by running water, who would dig its roots deeply into the soil and would produce fruit in its season. There, Psalm 1 promises that the unrighteous are not like that. In fact, they're like chaff that is blown away and will be consumed by God's wrath. But the opposite, the converse is happening from Jeremiah's perspective. The unrighteous are the ones planted and prospering, bearing fruit in their season. And it is the righteous which seem to be cast out, to be set aside, to be consumed. The wicked are the ones who gather in the house of the Lord, while the unrighteous, where the righteous seem to be cast away. The unrighteous are planted and bearing fruit. The righteous are being cast out. So Jeremiah looks out at his circumstances. He sees the threat of life against him, and he sees the wicked and the unrighteous prospering, and his confidence and his obedience to God is at a crucial point, that the ground beneath him seems to falter a little bit as he wonders, what should I do? Is this worth it? What good will I be if I'm dead? And maybe you've been at this point in your life before wondering if following God and your obedience to God is really worth the pain and the suffering or the ostracism or the weird side eyes or the glances that you may get from the strangers, co-workers, family, etc. That you've wondered, even if you've never vocalized it in your own heart or your own mind, it would be a lot easier if I didn't just have to do this for the Lord. Or maybe I'm the only one. There are things with Scripture that we are commanded to do and we know them and often we are faced with the challenge to obey God in the midst of our circumstances. It would be so much easier and so much more convenient for us 
if that command wasn't there. And in that moment, the decision point is, is obedience to God here really worth it? Or maybe I should just kind of go back to what I was doing before. Jeremiah is in that place as he prays and complains to God and Jeremiah's own commitment seems to waver, but what we see then is God's own commitment does not. And this is the backstop to Jeremiah's commitment, that he runs into the faithful, unmoving commitment of God, which keeps him on course. So the uncertainty of obedience because of the threat of harm and the prosperity of wicked causes Jeremiah to reconsider a commitment he's made to God, He runs into God's commitment and the certainty of his judgment where God essentially says to him, I know it's hard. I see you and I do know you. And I know that it's difficult. In fact, he says something fairly surprising. Instead of just saying, yeah, I'm going to take care of it, he says in verse 5 of chapter 12, if you think it's hard now, it's only going to get worse. If you've raced with men on foot and they've wearied you, How will you compete against horses? Probably referring to the horses of Babylon who will come and overtake the city. If you are in a safe land and are so trusting, what are you going to do in the thicket of Jordan, the jungle or there around the wilderness where wolves and and lions lie in wait? Even your brothers in the house of your father, they are dealing treacherously with, with you. They're in full cry after you. So I know it's hard, Jeremiah, but it will get harder. And by the way, I understand how difficult commitment to a purpose and a cause may be. God is going to reveal his commitment in three ways. First, he reveals in the first 7 through 13 that God has committed always to his own character. He's committed to his own character. He says, I've forsaken my house. I've abandoned my heritage. I've given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. Now this is the people, the heritage there is Israel, his covenant people that he's made for himself and set apart for himself. His beloved, he calls her, and says, I have even given my beloved over into the hands of their enemy. That's how committed he is to his own purposes. God is committed to his own character. That because of their rebellion, the work of desolation, The shepherds have destroyed the vineyard, trampled down the portion, have so ruined and diluted the faithfulness of his people that God, in a commitment to his own righteous, just character, as difficult as it may be for him, is to give them up to discipline and correction. Your text may have verses 7 through 13 in a sort of poetic kind of form. And indeed, in the Hebrew, this form is one that's often associated with lament. So, a quick thing to know about God. God doesn't process and have feelings the way you and I have feelings. That's a deeper conversation which you can talk to Jake about later. (laughs) But what Jeremiah is cluing us into is it doesn't mean that God does not have any thoughts or emotions that we can understand about him. Though God may not experience emotion like you and I experience emotion, he nonetheless reveals himself to be greatly grieved and troubled and even angered by the sin and the effect of idolatry on his people. So Jeremiah writes this in a form of poetry that is associated with lament, sadness. So God expresses his own lament over the people's rejection of him and his own covenant. But this lament doesn't signal a desire for God to give up on them. He's not saying, I, I just, I'm ready to write them off. But rather, it signals a willingness to do what is hard. Again, not quite in the same way you and I would do something hard, for nothing is truly hard for God. But you get the sentiment that God hears describing his beloved he delivers to the hands of his enemies he will allow them to overtake her to devour her to trample them under feet because he is more committed to his character as righteous just as God than he is simply to overlooking 
even in the most beloved sins. So God is committed to his character, but secondly, we see that God is committed to his word. Look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. This is what he says. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the, uh, pluck up the house of Judah from among them. He's committed to his word. Look at verse 17. If any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. So he will say, no, Jeremiah, I hear your complaint. And I understand that you think what I've said in Psalm 1 the, is not holding fast. That, that those who are righteous should be prospering, even though the unrighteous seem to be prospering now. No, my word is true. The righteous will prosper. The wicked will be cast away. I will be faithful to my word. Not only will he be committed and faithful to his character as righteous and just, but he is always and will always be committed to his word. For those who seem to be firmly rooted in their wickedness will be plucked up. This is the idea of grabbing a weed, ripping it out, roots and all, so that it may be consumed. God's committed to his word as well as his character. And lastly, we see in the certainty of judgment, the revelation of the commitment of God to his covenant. He has even a thing to say to Judah, his own beloved, who he said he will give over to the hands of her enemy, he says there in verse 15 and verse 16, After I have plucked up Judah, I will again have compassion on them. I will bring them again, each to his heritage, each to his land, that, that land of promise. And it shall come to pass that if they diligently learn the ways of my people and swear by name of the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. And for a moment, we see God honor this commitment to his covenant. After the exile ends, he raises up a Persian king to allow them to go back to their land, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, and to repopulate the land. Now, ultimately, the greater purposes of God will lead to a new and a better covenant, but we see his commitment to his word, his character, and to his covenant play out here, that he says, I will do what I promised I will do. And that if those who return to me in faith and in repentance, they will have their land. They will have their portion. So the uncertainty of obedience in Jeremiah's mind hits the backstop of God's certainty of judgment. And it causes Jeremiah to wonder, okay, if it's worth it to follow Jesus, excuse me, follow God, then might I understand his commitment in a new way. The question is, how does Jeremiah go from uncertainty in his mission for God to certainty in his obedience? as he hits that backstop against God's own commitment. Well, the link, or, or the hinge, or the fulcrum, if you'd like, between the subjective experience of our circumstances over here and the objective reality of God's redeeming purposes over here, the link between those two is whether or not we are willing to commit our causes to him. What he says at the beginning as he prays to God, for to you I have committed my cause, is the joining link between the, un, the, the uncertainty of obedience on the one hand and the confident obedience on the other. The link between those two is whether or not you and I are willing to commit ourselves and our cause to the Lord. We can confidently commit ourselves to God. That's the lesson we should take. We can confidently commit ourselves and our causes to God because He is faithful and because He is committed to us. When the doubt in our mind and the wavering confidence in our heart hits the backstop of God's revealed commitment to us, His Word, His character, and His covenant, then we ourselves can bolster our hope and commit ourselves to this faithful God. He is this solid rock on which we can build our lives and our trust. And that because of who He is, there is no true threat to our happiness. This is the message to Jeremiah, that though you hear the threat of harm, there is no true threat if your confidence is in me. And so let's examine then quickly 
six ways to confidently commit our cause, ourselves, and our cause to a trustworthy God. First, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. The gospel, of course, is the good news that the Son of God, Jesus, becomes man. He takes on flesh, though without sin. And he suffers the wrath of God against sin in our place. And whoever believes and trusts in that work of sin-absorbing, wrath-absorbing, death of Christ receive the security and the benefit, not of God's condemnation, but of God's grace, of His mercy, and of His forgiveness. We must start by remembering the gospel. The first step in committing ourselves and our cause to a trustworthy God is to remember that this God has already demonstrated His commitment to us in Christ. Jesus promises this. And John reiterates this in 1 John chapter 4. When John says to his audience, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He speaks, of course, of the Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, God Himself who dwells within us, is greater than he who is in the world. And not simply just those Individuals who are opposed to God and His kingdom in this world, but against our greatest adversary. See, our greater enemy is not our neighbor or the culture from which that neighbor hails. It's not our political opponent or the fake Christian across the street, all of which have some level of serious threats against us. But we have a very powerful and real adversary who does now scheme and actively ensnare us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're warned to be sober-minded and to be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There are warnings all over the New Testament that the enemy, this adversary, lays snares that Christians would fall prey to, and that he would come and devour those who fall into them. But if we remember the gospel that Jesus' death resurrection proves that God is faithful and that our hope and our confidence is built not in what we have done or will do, but what Christ has done, then we recognize that in Christ our victory is the one He has won for us, not one we win for ourselves. Or in other words, Christ's victory over the enemy is ours. Christ's victory over the enemy is ours. Colossians says it best. You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. There's the gospel. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses and canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, the record of debt, nailing it to the cross. And in doing this, listen to what it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what happens in the cross? Jesus suffers the wrath of God against our sin. And our faith means that Jesus' righteousness becomes our own and that his substitution becomes for us our source of forgiveness, but also that his victory is now our victory. He has disarmed the rulers and authority, which means there is no sword, believer, there is no sword to your throat. He has pointed out all the snares, all the traps, and has shown you that there is no enemy which truly can harm you. There is no threat. Why? Because he has put them to open shame. Jesus has triumphed over him. So the first step in committing yourself to a faithful and trustworthy God is remembering this gospel. This is the first and most important. But secondly, you are to walk in integrity. You are to walk in integrity. Again, we must remove all instances of duplicity or, or hypocrisy in our walk by inviting God to test our hearts and our mind. This is what he says in verse 20. O Lord of hosts who judge righteously, who tests the heart and the mind. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew there is K. 
kidney and heart. And again, there in verse 3 of chapter 12, You, O Lord, know me. You see me. You test my heart toward you. The Psalms are also full of this language. Test me, O Lord, for you know my ways are pure. I am righteous before you. And they're talking about innocence or perfection or sinlessness. They're saying, God, you know that I have been committed to you here, that I seek and desire earnestly and sincerely to be obedient to you. You have given me this new heart. You have honored your commitment to me in saving me. Therefore, Lord, you know me. And so we must walk with integrity according to that truth by inviting God to test our heart and mind. We are not to walk in duplicity or hypocrisy. What would it have been like if Jeremiah was guilty of all the same sins of idolatry that Judah was, and yet he answers his complaint before God? It would have been difficult for him to stand, but here he stands confidently that he has given himself as best he could to God's word, and he desires that God would honor that. He doesn't claim perfection or sinlessness, but simply trust. James chapter 4 verse 8 will say that we should draw near to God and He will draw near to you. You see, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So if we ask and invite God to examine our heart and minds, and we say, Lord, test me, show me, and examine where I am faulty in my walking with integrity before you, so that I may be more faithful in your cause. So when we begin to doubt and waver, let us first remember the gospel, but then commit ourselves to be faithful to what he has called us, As we commit ourselves to a trustworthy God, we invite Him and pray and ask Him, Lord, show me, test me, reveal any hypocrisy that I may walk more faithfully before you. So we are to remember the gospel, to walk in integrity. Third, we must treasure the promises of God over present hardship. Treasure the promises of God over any present hardship. See, an athlete can endure. A chef can cook for hours in a hot kitchen. A mother can labor for hours. All because the coming reward will be greater than their current trial. Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. How can people do hard things? They have a greater joy and glory that awaits them. Jesus, again, is our forerunner. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, all these others who have gone before us in faith, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What made Jesus able to endure the cross? It was that there was a joy set before him. What was this joy? It was the joy of obedience to God. It was the reward which he knew he would accomplish and secure. Not only God's pleasure, but the salvation of his people for whom he would die. That was joyful to God. Now this joy doesn't mean that he didn't find it difficult. We see in the garden him even praying as he began to experience the separation and wrath of God. And yet he was able to endure the cross and despise its shame because there was a joy. So friends, as you commit yourself to God, not only remember the gospel and Jesus' own joy and ask God to show you how you may more faithfully walk in integrity, but then grab these precious promises of God and His Word and treasure them more than your circumstances. Let them show you that behind this difficult circumstance is a greater reward that awaits you. 
It may come immediately or it may come in eternity, but it is yours. As the hymn once said, behind every frowning providence hides a smiling face. So treasure the promises of God over present hardship. Fourth, simply put, stay sane. As you commit yourself to God and His purposes, stay sane. How do we do this? We commit ourselves to those means of grace, God's Word, prayer, and His people. I want you just for a moment to turn back to Psalm chapter 73. There's a similar crisis of faith here in the psalmist. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. What happened? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Sound familiar? For they have no pangs and ill death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as garments. Their eyes swell through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Lawfully, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. And therefore, his people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? It's this blasphemy that comes from them. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have been betrayed by the generation of your children. So he, he knows what Jeremiah is going through. But when I, this is verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Much the same conclusion Jeremiah would come to much later. Psalm 73 outlines the perfect means of grace that you and I can use that is our gift to commit ourselves to God when we feel our faith or our commitment wavering. That we come to God in prayer with a genuine lament. See, in Psalm 73, we see that the problem here is this unbelief, at least temporary unbelief. Namely, this failure to trust God or to be governed by the, the truth of verse 1 that surely you are good. This is sort of temporary amnesia that God's character is upright. And this unbelief causes him to see the circumstances and the circumstances of those around him very differently and inaccurately. Because among other things, belief is going to distort our perspective of reality because it makes us short-sighted and see things as finality and present only rather than understanding the future ramifications of actions. Unbelief is going to consider the pursuit of righteousness and holiness a fool's errand when everyone else seems to be relaxing and prospering. And unbelief causes us to arrogantly presume that we should be better because we are righteous in our actions. And so we become envious of others' conditions and we complain about our own. But the, the fulcrum, the shift happens when he prays and he goes to church, if I may put it that way. He goes to the place of refuge and he's instructed by God's word. He's filled and encouraged by the worship service. He finds rest and encouragement in the midst of God's faithful people. Even in the Old Testament, there's a place where God's people could come and draw near to God by His revelation, by His word. And there He's instructed and He sees, He discerns the end of the wicked. He says, oh yeah, God's righteous. God will take care of the wicked. I need only to be faithful. So friends, stay sane. Stay grounded to the truth. Go to church. Read your Bible and pray. Now, that's not legalism. That's just the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. Do this faithfully, and it will help you stay on track. Even with a sincere attitude of complaint and lament, would you acknowledge God's righteousness? You can express frustration to God with a sincere heart. We are not here to admit how perfect we are, but how messed up and frustrated life can be. But we trust God, and His Word keeps us sane. That's number four. I have to keep going which is number five, keep going. 
to commit yourself to the cause of a trustworthy God, just keep going. The message to Jeremiah is that obeying God is worth it. Obeying God is worth it. It's worth even laying down your own life, as Jeremiah soon would. That when the question comes, do I obey God, or do I turn from obedience because it's easier to skirt away, keep going. Obeying God is worth it. The reward is God himself, his pleasure which is to be our greatest treasure, the purposes and the plans of God unfolded in our lives and the fruit of obedience and righteousness are all the sweeter as you and I have endured, sometimes with great hardship and suffering, those difficult circumstances that come to our lives. The long nights with small children, the difficult arguments with your spouse, the loss of a loved one, the difficulties of sickness, the loss of a job, the suffering, the persecution of Christians around the world, senseless and random acts of violence, school shootings, catastrophes, all of this may question whether or not this whole thing is worth pursuing. And God's Word tells you and I this morning to keep going. Obedience and faithfulness is worth it. Commit yourself to God. And lastly, don't forget that God will not abandon you. Jeremiah says, everyone's left me. My community, my friends, even my own family have abandoned me and seek my own life. Are you, are you next, God? Remember, friends, that God will not abandon you. Jesus makes this promise to Christians at the end of Matthew, chapter 28. After the Great Commission, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is a command to go and a promise to go with. God will not abandon you in your obedience. The provision of God's presence with us and for us is a precious promise. And the provision of God's presence is secured by two truths. One, the faithfulness of God himself. He said it and so it will be. But secondly, the provision of God's presence is secured by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His own death is the means by which God's presence is secured for us. Jesus was rejected by his family. He was abandoned by his friends in the hour he needed the most. He was mocked by his community, scorned by his peers. And in order that he might completely substitute himself for our sins, and sympathize with us in every way, even God, His Father, poured out wrath against Jesus. All of this so that He may secure for you and I God's precious promise of presence. Christian, if you're here this morning, you have the Spirit which is the seal and the guarantor of our faith. That's what Ephesians tells us until we acquire full possession of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, of eternity, of God, not only, like Paul would say, as a mirror dimly, but face to face. The Spirit is the very presence of God in your life, which commends you well to go to God in trust. Once we do this, friends, we will with certainty walk faithfully, with integrity, remembering the gospel, committing ourselves and our causes to him, saying, obedience is worth it. Not for the praise or the accolades we get from other Christians clapping their hands silently, cheering us on on the sidelines, but for the reward of God's good pleasure and the reward of God himself. All of this is only possible because Christ has first gone for us. He who was abandoned ensures that we would never be abandoned. He who suffers ensures that we would never finally suffer threat or loss. The uncertainty of our obedience meets the backstop of the certainty of the gospel, and our hope is renewed, our confidence is restored. And so, friends, as I say again, the main idea this morning was that the ground of your confidence and the ground of your obedience must be the trust in God for who he is.
what he has done, and what he has promised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all of those good, wonderful, precious truths. We are so tempted and prone to forget, Lord. But God, you have committed yourself to us by grace. Help us to remember that truth. To the very great and precious promises in your word, to steal ourselves in commitment to you. May your commitment to us and Christ's commitment in obedience to you foster in us and the Spirit work within us to create a commitment and a zeal for your glory. May the ground of our confidence and the ground of our obedience be this trust for who you are, what you have done, and what you have promised. We pray as always in Jesus' name. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. the show